I'll uh, begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather together in freedom and learn more about who you are and the praises that even the angels sing of you. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to think well upon your text this morning so that we may be more conformed to the image of your Son, that we may also stand until the day that you come firm in the gospel. And uh, we thank you for these things, Lord. We thank you that we have an opportunity to look at the glories and the plan that you have for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now as we begin, I want to remind you where we were last time. We had looked at the seven different glories and attributes that the angels had praised Jesus for. And I want to just point out a couple of them that are somewhat unique in Revelation. You see power. Power is often, again, used in some of the uh, doxologies. For instance, you'll see it in Jude 25 and uh, 1 Timothy 6. You'll also see might elsewhere. But in one false swoop, you have both the power and the might of Christ being exalted. And we're going to see his strength further exalted in the very next verse, in verse 13. Okay, And you're going to see why that is. The reason why Christ's strength is being exalted is because he's the one who's strong enough to kick out the usurper and to bring the kingdom about for his people. And so now we continue in verse 13 where we have this worship ahead of time. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. Let's read the text. This is verses 13 and 14. John writes, In every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down. And they worshiped. Now, the first thing I want you to notice in this text, notice you have a fourfold reference to creation. And it really means the entire creation. You have a reference to the created things in heaven, number one, and on the earth, number two, under the earth, number three, and then what? On the sea, number four. And so this is a fourfold representation of creation, which just means the whole creation. Now, earlier in chapter 5, verse 3, you had all of creation represented in this way. It says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book. So the Bible uses different imagery for the whole of creation. And one of the interesting things to me in this text is the curious phrase, under the earth. That may be a way of alluding to even the demonic realm, the demonic realm that is locked away Remember we read those passages in uh, 2 Peter and also in Jude 6? Remember that? Well, one day it says, in in fact, turn your Bibles to Philippians 2. Let's just look at this together. Philippians 2, 10 through 11. There's going to be a day where every single creature will give glory to Christ. And so in a sense, the key is to give him glory now and to give him honor now. Bow the knee now where you have salvation, because every knee will bow. The big question is, are you going to bow your knee now, or are you going to do it later as you're being judged? But every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, on the dark days when you see Christ's name pillaged and Christians martyred, isn't it wonderful to know that one day Christ's name will be exalted? Now, notice here in Philippians 2.10, Paul says, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Now let's stop there. Does everybody see that in Philippians 2.10? That is a direct allusion back to Isaiah 45.23. Now the reason that's important is because in Isaiah 45.23, who's being exalted and who will be confessed as Lord? Yahweh. And so here Jesus is then likened to Yahweh. It's a clear... Yeah, Norm. Uh, this, this idea about things under the heaven. Yeah. I was thinking about that in... Sorry. In uh, in Colossians one twenty, where it talks about everything being reconciled, yeah, and it mentions that things on in heaven and on earth, and some people think, well, then that means universal, even no. Satan and everybody will be reconciled, but it doesn't mention things under the earth. Sure. So, sure. does that possibly mean that that the demonic beings are considered part of the under the earth, and therefore they don't get reconciled? Yeah, I, I think that there's maybe an allusion to that here. We can't be dogmatic on it, but I think that there's a good case that can be made for it. But you're right, one day everything will be reconciled, and we have to realize that in context of the rest of Scripture, the idea is that the fallen creation will one day be brought back to its purposes in which God created it. Now, that doesn't mean every single person or sentient being is going to be saved, uh, it just simply means that God is going to rectify the curse, and he will wipe out evil. But, yeah, very interesting, very good point. Yeah, now, one of the reasons I think under the earth may be an allusion to the demonic realm is because the angels are so in view here. The angels are singing the praises. Here, I think we have a proleptic view of all of creation. I'll talk about what that means in a moment. But I want to go back to the text here in Philippians 2.10. Notice not, that, not just that every knee will bow, he says, of, notice, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And then in verse 11, he says, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, you see that in Isaiah 45, 23. So under the earth, remember, that's where you have the demonic realm being held according to the cosmology here of the Bible. And so that's maybe an allusion to that one day every single creature, even those that have rebelled against God will have to confess that he is Lord. Now, one thing I want to show you is a backdrop to this passage in the reference to all of creation, maybe from Psalm 146, verses 5 through 6. I love this psalm. It's all about how God can be our helper. It says, How blessed is the one whose helper is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who remains forever faithful. So notice what's in red. He made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them. That's why he's the right to be glorified. He's the creator, and that's what's being extolled also in Revelation chapter 5. Jesus is the creator, and so that's why he deserves all the praise, honor, and glory that's to be given to him. Now, very interesting. Notice in Psalm, just a quick aside, it says, How blessed is the one whose helper is the God of Jacob. The term here for helper, it's there is a term that's used earlier in Genesis 2.18. Remember, there was no etzer, there was no helper found suitable for man. So the woman is the suitable etzer, a helper. And so that's a very godly thing that God created a woman, didn't he? He created her as a suitable etzer. And so you can see a godly attribute of being a helper. That's a good thing. Think about later... God, the, the God of Israel, is the helper of Israel. He's the etzer. He's the one who saves them. Well, when Jesus is going to leave his people, in John 14, 
Listen to what he says. I've got to scroll my passage down if I can find my cursor. John 14, 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever, a parakletos. And so God is the one who is our helper. And as Jesus, who is our God in our midst, he ascends into the heavens, he sends another helper, one who's going to keep us within the faith, one who intercedes for us in our prayers according to Romans 8. And so God is our helper. He's the one who sustains us in salvation. We don't even pray as we ought. So that's one of the asides I just wanted to mention out of Psalm 146. Now, the big picture, though, I want you to see in this passage is what's being said. What are the words of praise that all of creation is going to give to Christ? Now, remember, when it says that heaven and earth and all those under the earth and the sea, obviously that has not happened yet. All of creation is not currently worshiping Christ. And so this is what's called proleptic look, a proleptic look. Proleptic just means it's set ahead of time. So certain is it that it can be stated as if it's already occurred. And we see that often as a theme in Revelation. In Revelation 11, we're going to see it again, that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of Christ, although it actually awaits for eight chapters later. Okay? Yeah, Brian. So do preterists just totally ignore the book of Revelation? No, they, they will try to assign meaning to it. The problem that they have is they'll try to assign the meaning to 70 AD. So the problem with that is what they'll say is, well, only the last chapters, like chapters 20 through 22, are for the future. There's a big problem with that because what, the reason they get that is in the beginning, in chapter 1, remember Jesus says these things are near? Well, they conclude, well, that has to be 70 AD. Because 70 AD, they believe the book of Revelation was written around 65. So to them, near must be 70 AD. Well, then they believe that Revelations 20 through 22 are referring to the future, still in our future, because they have to have the coming of Christ, right, literally. But Jesus says the same things. These things are near. So if those things were near, and yet they're off to the future, how come the things in the beginning that were near aren't off into the future as well? They're not consistent. That's the point. So what's sad is full preterism, which says everything is complete and Jesus is not coming back literally, bodily, physically. That's heresy, right? But that's actually more consistent. Partial preterists are less consistent. That would be my argument. In other words, I'm disagreeing with both, but what I'm saying is at least preterists are consistent. Partial preterists aren't. Okay, they have to choose, say, hey, the beginning of the book is for 70 AD, but the end of it is for the last days. Yeah. So one's a heretic and the other is just sick and wrong. Yeah, that's what I would say, yeah. It's a distortion of, think of the obvious evidence. Preterism, by the way, was created by the Catholics as a counter to the Reformation. The Reformers were historists. They believed that the book of Revelation should be understood in history. So if the book of Revelation should be understood through history, well, then they saw the Pope as the Antichrist. Well, to get off the hook, what the Catholics did is they conceived of a scheme that everything in Revelation was fulfilled in 70 A.D. So isn't it interesting today, so many Reformed of the Reformed faith are holding to preterism, which is actually a Catholic doctrine. That's where it stems from. Okay, so very sad. Yeah? Just one more thing. It always boggles my mind how a brilliant guy like R.C. Sproul 
can be involved in something like that. You would think that through his years of study that he wouldn't fall into that partial preterist uh, yeah. Uh, heading. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. never figure that out. How, yeah. how can, we're, we're, they're so good in teaching in areas, and yeah. then yet they get to this, and they just blow it up. Yeah, he has a book called Last Days According to Jesus, and um, maybe we'll discuss it sometime. I would like to show some of the faults. Bob has actually handled one of the big issues in one of his CIC articles, and that is uh, this generation. They See, what R.C. is reacting to is a man named Bertrand Russell. He was a critic of Christianity, and when in the Gospels it says all these things will come upon this generation, he said, aha, if this generation means the generation alive during Jesus... Well, he didn't come during that period, therefore Christianity is a hoax. So what R.C. Sproul does is he says, well, no, it did happen in 70 A.D. So he tries to get Jesus off the hook. But if we properly understand what this generation, how it's being used as a pejorative, referring to all unbelief from the time of Cain murdering Abel to the time of the end, if we understand it as a pejorative, of that which characterizes the unbelieving age that we're currently living in prior to the messianic age, all of a sudden it makes sense. And that's clearly how this generation's used. Okay, and that's what Bob was showing us in his CIC articles. And that's why I hope people avail themselves of those resources. Yeah. Yep. So thank you. But um, now, hey, where was I now? Uh, no, I mean, and by the way, good questions. I'm glad. Where, where were we? <laughs> okay, Psalm 146. But we were talking about um oh proleptic right so the idea is that this is stated beforehand although it's not yet occurred so in other words the praise that we're looking at on the screen before us has not yet happened but it's so assured that it will happen that it's spoken as if it already has and that's called proleptic speaking ahead of time as if something has already happened now look at the fourfold praise that's given to jesus notice we have repetition from previously in verse 12 blessing that's a repetition. Honor, number two, is a repetition. Glory. But all of a sudden we get to dominion, and now we have something new. And it's the last word of praise given to Christ and to God prior to getting into Revelation chapter 6. Now, this is important, I think. The term dominion here is kratos. And let me give you a definition that the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament gives. This is the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It says, kratos, quote, denotes the superior power of God to which the final victory will belong, unquote. And that's why it's often labeled dominion. So Robert Thomas, one of my favorite scholars in the book of Revelation, he says it this way, the term dominion, kratos, is God's power, his, remember we saw in the, pre, let me just back up, power dunamis and might iscus, is as if it's God's strength in reserve. He has that power, but all of a sudden we get forward to Kratos, and it's his power poured out, his power that leads to dominion, his power that leads to a kingdom. It's his power in action. That would be the idea. Okay. Now, very interesting, you see this idea of Kratos in the book of Ephesians. And in a sense, Kratos... This idea of God's power in Christ being poured out upon his people to save them and to redeem them is the bookends, in a sense, of Ephesians. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 1, verses 18 through 19. Ephesians 1, 18 through 19. 
Now remember, what's the issue in Ephesus? Does anybody remember? In Asia Minor, I know Bob has talked a lot about this. He's written a nice CIC article on the armor of God. I highly recommend. In Ephesus, you had Christians who were again concerned with really the demonic realm. And they were concerned that these angels, these fallen angels, controlled their fate. And so they left the sufficiency of Christ alone. And they started seeking help elsewhere, specifically the worship of angels. So in Ephesians... Paul has to say, no, you have all you need in Christ. So notice in Ephesians 1, 18 through 19, Paul says this. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Let's stop there. The eyes of the heart, what he's really saying there is, I hope you think well. I hope your mind, remember the heart is the seat of emotions and the intellect. I hope you finally think in an enlightened way. Okay? Here's the reason. He says, so that you will know... Notice the knowledge idea. What is the hope of his calling? Now, let's stop there. What calling is being referred to? Two types of calling. There's the universal calling. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But then we have our effectual calling. That is, God calls to repentance his elect. And it's the latter, the effectual calling, that's being referred to here. So this is only for believers, the effectual calling. So he wants us to know what the hope of our calling is. And he goes on to say, namely, I would put, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? Now notice he says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Now notice the term strength there. That's kratos. It's the same term that we have here for dominion. And so how is it that you and I are saved? How is it that you and I have an inheritance and all the riches that we have in Christ? It's not because of our strength or our ability, but it's the poured out strength and power of God that he can save the unregenerate. And so now it's being depicted here because he's going to kick out the usurper. You see, he's going to kick out the enemy. The whole world will rebel against him, the unregenerate, and he's strong enough to prevail. And he's going to bring us a kingdom. That's what's being... Now, let me show you one more thing in Ephesians. Go to the end of the book, Ephesians chapter 6. You'll see a bookend of this idea of kratos. Ephesians 6.10. Listen to how Paul begins to conclude here. Ephesians 6.10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the kratos, the strength of his might. And then from verses 11 through 17, what does he say to do? You're to stand firm in the armor of God. So remember in verses 11 through 17 of Ephesians 6, you have all these pieces of armor, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, etc., all those things, right? And all of them are synonymous with the gospel. What he's saying is stand firm in the gospel of Christ. That's what he's saying. That's the strength of God. So again, salvation is completely of the strength of God. That's how the book of Ephesians is bookended. And that's what we're leaving Revelation chapter 5 with. The strength of Christ and of God to save us. Now, why would that be important? Well, let me show you John's segue to God's wrath. Think about it. 
the throne room. That's where we've been now. We're leaving it. Okay, I don't want to have you leave the throne room uh, too early, but we'll be back, right? (laughs) We'll be back someday for real in our resurrected bodies. Chapters 4 and 5, the chapters conclude with giving Jesus and God on the throne praise for his kratos, his strength. And right after that, when we get into chapter 6, we have wrath. We have the wrath of God poured out. His strength now is going to be poured out. His kratos, which leads to his dominion. So think of it. You have seven seals beginning in Revelation 6 all the way to Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. And the seven seals, I believe, are the beginning of God's wrath. And then after that, you have seven trumpets. Revelation 8, 2 to 11, 19. And then you have seven bowls, Revelation 16, 1 to 21. And then what does that lead to? Well, the doom of Babylon. Those are the usurpers, the one world government under Antichrist trying to usurp the Messiah's right to rule and to kill the people of God. The doom of Babylon, Revelation chapter 17 through 18. Well, then Jesus comes. His kingdom does come to earth, Revelation 19 through 20. Then you have the eternal states, the new heavens, the new earth, new Jerusalem, Revelation 21 through 22. So notice the very last term, kratos, strength, and then you have the pouring out of his wrath. His wrath is poured out. It leads to the doom of Babylon and the coming of the kingdom. And I think that that's the strategic location of the last praise, being focused on the dominion, the power, and the strength and might of Christ. All right? Now, one of the things that we're going to wrestle with is this concept of wrath, because as we get into chapter 6, we start getting into an arena in Revelation that's very controversial. And what's controversial is this period that's depicted in Revelation 6, is it actually a time of God's wrath? And I would say that it is. Now, what I want to do is I had mentioned I wanted to talk about differing views in eschatology, and let me explain why I want to do this. There's two risks that we run. Number one, we can be mean-spirited in eschatology, where we have no room for other differing views and we separate over peripheral issues. We don't want to have that type of attitude, but we also don't want this postmodern idea where, well, we really can't know, and therefore we just kind of read these things loosely and just walk by. No, I think we can know. Uh, John MacArthur famously said, God has not muddled the ending. Okay, he was clear about the beginning, he's clear about the middle, and he hasn't muddled the ending either. But what I want to do on this slide in particular is I want to show you the issues at hand that are really debated regarding eschatology. And I think there's three if you boil it down. First of all, when it comes to Revelation, these are the differing views of the book of Revelation. There's the historist view, the preterist the idealist, and the futurist. Now, we talked about this in our introduction. Let's remind ourselves, what does the historist believe? Well, they believe the book of Revelation is primarily a book about what happened through church history. And that's the view of the Reformers. The Reformers, again, thought that the Pope was the Antichrist. Okay, things like that. The preterist, that's the view that everything was fulfilled in 70 AD. A partial preterist would say, Well, the majority of the book of Revelation was fulfilled in 70 A.D. The idealist is really a spiritualist. He sees the the book of Revelation as just the battle between good and evil, between God's forces and the forces of Satan that occur in any generation. So they highly spiritualize the text. And by the way, in my opinion, all of these camps do. Okay? I believe in the futurist understanding. Okay? And I supported that and proved it, I think, in my introduction. 
The futurist understanding sees this as history, but history that will unfold in the future. And that's why we don't have to spiritualize the text. We just take it as it says, primarily. We don't have to spiritualize the thousand years, for example. We just say it's probably a thousand years or a long period of time at least, right? All right. So the historist, the preterist, and the idealist, we said, well, those were deficient. We came to the futurist. So that's one debate. The second category is on the tribulation, and specifically the debate over mid-trib, post-trib, pre-trib, all those things has to do with when does Jesus come for the church in relation to the 70th week of Daniel, okay? The 70th week of Daniel is the last seven years, right? Now, remember this idea of Jesus coming for the church is very scriptural, isn't it? The idea of a rapture isn't made up by Tim LaHaye or those rascals who wrote the Left Behind series. It's taught in the scriptures, isn't it? I heard someone um, tell my wife, she says, well, I don't believe in the rapture. And she goes to church. She's a Bible-believing Christian. I'm like, well, <laughs> the Bible teaches harpazo, being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. I don't know what you do with that in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. So I'm not telling you that there's a, there's a rapture. The Bible's telling you that, okay? 1 Thessalonians 4.16. So the real question is, when does Christ come for the church in relationship to the 70th week? That's another big debate. And the third arena is on the millennium. Specifically, when does Jesus return with respect to the thousand years mentioned in passages like Revelation 20, verse 6? Okay, so premillennial, that's what I would hold to. I know Bob does, and we primarily do here at Gospel of Grace, would be the idea that Christ returns prior to the thousand years, and he sets up his kingdom, and his kingdom on earth lasts for a thousand years, followed by a brief time in which Satan and his forces come against him, he wipes them out. It's a very lopsided battle. He calls fire down from heaven, wipes them out, and then he ushers in the eternal states. But Christ comes before and sets up his millennial kingdom. Postmillennialism has it the opposite. They believe that the Christian gospel is going to be so effective and we are going to bring the kingdom basically to earth and then Christ returns after this glory, glory period and he's going to set up his kingdom then. Okay, now, think about just briefly, when you read the book of Revelation, does that sound plausible? No. doesn't sound very plausible, does it? Jesus said, working for you. Yeah, exactly. Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith upon the earth? Now, the post-millennialist is saying, well, we're going to not only find faith, we're going to Christianize the planet. Well, that would be news to Jesus and what's being taught in Revelation. Now, the other one is amillennialism. Amillennialism is basically you and I are in it now. It's during the church age. There is no millennial. It's just you go right to the second coming in the eternal state. So we're living in this time period, supposedly, where the nations are no longer being deceived. I don't think that that's very true. <laughs> so we'll come to that. We're going we're gonna to come to this when we get to Revelation chapter 20, and we'll spend some time on that. But I want to focus on number two now, because when we get into Revelation 6, these are where the key issues surrounding the timing of the rapture come into play. And the risk is I could just go by this and not even mention these things, but I want to give you a handle of what the issues are. And the reason I want to do that is so that you may have confidence that you know that, look, this is what the Scripture teaches. It's not that hard. It's not rocket science. We're not trying to put a man on the moon here. We're just trying to interpret what's been said. Okay? Now, let's look at the different views regarding the tribulation. Pre-tribulation, again, says that Jesus raptures the church prior to the 70th week of Daniel. Now, is everybody on board with me there? 
Remember in the book of Daniel, I have 70 weeks, 490 years until God's redemptive plan would unfold completely, where you'd have the fulfillment of all prophecy, you'd have righteousness upon the earth, Jerusalem would be restored, all those things. Well, 69 of those weeks, 483 years, occurred at Jesus' first advent. And then we had a postponement of these seven years. And the point is, we don't know when it's going to break forth. Okay, so what we're claiming in the pre-tribulation view is that Jesus raptures the church just prior to that 70th week coming. Post-tribulation says the opposite, really. I say Jesus raptures the church at the end of the 70th week. Mid-trib. By the way, let me give you some names. Um, Post-trib, probably the biggest name there would be a man named Robert Gundry. I'll be dealing with some of his works here this morning. Robert Gundry is a big post-trib view guy. He wrote a book called The Church in the Tribulation in 1973, very influential. Mid-trib would be a man named Gleason Archer. Uh, that has the idea that Jesus raptures the church in the middle of the 70th week. Okay, so he sees a distinction between man's wrath, the first three and a half years, and what he would say, God's wrath, the last three and a half. Now, Gleason Archer is a wonderful scholar. I disagree with him here, but he gets a lot of things right. Very good. Then we have pre-wrath. They see that Jesus raptures the church sometime during the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. And so their understanding then of imminence comes with the idea that you don't know when in the last three and a half years Christ is going to rapture the church. Okay, you would know the first three and a half years when that happens that it's going to be within the last three and a half, but you don't know when in that last three and a half. That would be their idea. A good scholar today that would hold to this would be a man named like Alan Kirshner. Alan Kirshner has probably got the best material, in, in my opinion, out on pre-wrath. Uh, we would agree on a lot of things. We just disagree on this point. So with that, let me move on and show you what I think the issues really are. The key issues when it comes to the timing of the rapture, I think we can boil it down to two big ones. The first one is when does wrath, God's wrath come? That's really the main question. Now, why is that such an important question regarding the timing of the rapture? Because we as believers have been promised to be exempt from God's wrath. And so if we've been promised to be exempt from God's wrath, all you have to know is when does God's wrath come? And when it comes, you can't be there. <laughs> You're exempt from it. So that's really all we're arguing about. And that's why it's so important to get this down now, because when we get into Revelation 6, my contention, I'll prove this to you, is wrath is poured out in the opening seals. Okay? Now, let's deal with some text here. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 through 10. And what I want you to wrestle with here with me are these, I'm going to give you three passages. There's more than this. But these are passages that promise the Christian exemption from God's wrath. We will not be a partaker in the wrath of God. And again, I'm contending that the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel is the beginning of God's wrath. So 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. Here Paul is really loving up on the people in Thessalonica. He's congratulating them, in a sense, for their faith. He says, for they themselves, those in Macedonia and elsewhere, he says, report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Now, verse 10, he says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So notice the term rescue, ruamai, we're literally rescued from the wrath to come. Now notice it's not the wrath that already exists, it's the wrath to come. 
Okay, so the wrath to come, and by the way, that's what John the Baptist said, remember, to those Pharisee rascals? He said, who told you, brood of vipers, to flee from the wrath to come? So we're always under the threat of this wrath that comes, I believe, in the 70th week. And so here, Paul's reminding them that in their faith, they're part of the people who will be saved from the wrath to come. Okay, now, skip ahead, if you will, in the book of 1 Thessalonians to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. And as you're turning to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1, just turn to that ahead. Remember, we're skipping over a very important section, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses basically 13 through 18. In that passage, we have the rapture, the reference of the church being caught up to meet the Lord in the air in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. So remember, those verses are about the rapture. The reason I mention that is notice then we get to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Notice it begins, it says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren. Notice where it says that. Notice the term now. The term now is peri day. Now remember, I spent a lot of ink on this in time in our all of a discourse on peri day. And peri day is a discourse marker that shows us there's a change in topic. But it's a change in topic that's related to the previous material. So now what Paul is focusing on is this is an element of the rapture. In other words, it's, it's associated with that, but it's a somewhat different topic that's in the general category, and that is the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is the broader category of which the rapture belongs. So he's switching topics now. He says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, let's just stop there in verse 2. He's telling them that they know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, for our purposes, this is the most important thing you have to realize about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, remember, was promised in the Old Testament prophets. Zephaniah, Amos, the book of Isaiah. It's all over the place, isn't it? And the day of the Lord, remember in the prophets, there was always the near-term judgments that happened in the prophet's day that were down payments that pointed to the eventuality of the full day of the Lord that would come in the messianic age, right? And what you and I have to remember is that the day of the Lord that's still in our future has to do with the salvation of God's people and the judgment of God's enemies. It's both. So if anyone says, no, it's only judgment, no. It's the salvation of God's people and the judgment and wrath on the enemies of God. Okay, that's what it has to do with. Now, notice he says that this day of the Lord, again, wrath on the enemies, salvation for God's people, that day comes like a thief. Now, there's two different terms for thief in the New Testament. Lastes is a thief or a robber. And then there's kleptase. Everyone here has probably heard of kleptomaniac, right? If you're a kleptomaniac, you can't help but... You got sticky fingers, you steal things, right? You can't help it, that's the idea. Well, kleptase is used here. Now, here's why it's important. Lastase is a robber or a thief who uses force. So, lastase would be used to emphasize the brutality of the thief. He gets his means by beating you over the head with a club or something, right? That's a lastase, but that's not what's being used here. Here it's kleptase. And the focus of the kleptase is stealth. So what's being emphasized then when Paul is saying that the day of the Lord comes like a kleptase, 
is not that it comes with violence, but he's focusing on the stealthy nature. The idea is you don't know when. A kleptase has to function by stealth, and therefore they can't tip you off as to what they're doing. And in the same way, if you and I were tipped off to when the day of the Lord would come, it wouldn't come like a kleptase. It wouldn't come like a thief. Okay, so that's the idea. It comes stealthily. We don't know. Now, notice he goes in verse 3. He says, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. The they there would be the unbelievers. Now, notice he says it comes suddenly while they're saying peace and safety. Now, that's going to be very important because I'm going to show you in the opening seal judgments, you have peace and safety taken from the earth at the second seal. Is everybody with me? So how could you be saying peace and safety after peace and safety has been taken from the earth? Okay, that's something to to stow away. We're going to come back to that. In verse 4, he says, But you, brethren, now he's talking to believers, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. Now let me stop there in verse 4. Got to fast forward my cursor here. Verse 4 is very important that we understand what he's saying. Is he saying that because you and I are believers, we know when Jesus is coming or when the... Because remember, chapter 4 is about the rapture, and that's connected with the day of the Lord. Is it that you and I as believers know when these things are going to happen? No. Jesus says in his Olivet Discourse, no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, right? Not the Son, but the Father. So we don't know when. The idea is that what difference differentiates you and I as believers from the unbelieving world, isn't that you and I know when these things are going to happen, it's that we believe they will happen. And because we're believers in the promises of God in Christ, whenever it happens, we're safe. We're people of the light, people of the day. We're the regenerate. Okay, that's the idea that we should have in our mind. He says in verse 5, For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then... Let us not sleep, that'd be spiritual slumber, being in unbelief, sleep as others do, but let us be alert, gregarao, being found in the faith, right? So let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Do you notice right there in verse 8? Here Paul talks about the armor of God again, doesn't he? He talks about the armor, and the armor is associated with what? The gospel, just like it was in Ephesians chapter 6. Okay, so we're to put on the armor of God, the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That has to do with the gospel. Now, he says in verse 9, 4. So this 4 is hati, it's causal. There's a connection between putting on the armor of God, that is putting on the gospel. Why should you and I continually put on the gospel and therefore persevere? For the promises are so great. He says, for, here's the reason why we should do it. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he didn't say, for God has promised every one of you a Cadillac. For God has promised you your best life now. God has promised you that you'll always get along with your neighbors and your family. He doesn't say that. Here's the promise. The reason you should stand firm in the gospel, here it is. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. So in other words, whether you're dead 
or you're alive when he comes. That was all resolved back in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. The dead in Christ rise first, and then you and I who are still alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Okay, so that's already been resolved. That's the point. Then he says, therefore, encourage one another. We're to encourage one another with this. That's what we're doing here today. That's why Bob's preaching out of Colossians. That's why we're teaching the word of God. We're to encourage one another about the gospel. Encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Now, here's one thing we want to wrestle with. Let's take a look at this term wrath. He says you have not been destined for wrath. Now, I've heard some, I've, I've heard people on the radio say this. Well, the wrath there is just generically hell. Well, that's certainly part of it. But what was the topic that was at hand just six verses earlier in verse 3? It was the day of the Lord, wasn't it? And if the day of the Lord, and my contention is it does, if it begins with the 70th week of Daniel, if the 70th week of Daniel is the wrath of God, well, then you've not been destined to that either. You see, so we have to remember that hell isn't in the immediate context. The day of the Lord is. And the day of the Lord isn't just the sentencing of people to hell that's incorporated within the day of the Lord, but there's many other facets to it. So it's the wrath particularly within the context of the day of the Lord as a whole that you've been promised exemption from. Yeah, Brian. Uh, I'm sure Bob will correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe a long time ago we were in, in some teaching, Bob was saying that throughout the Old Testament, whenever there's judgment is followed by grace. And if that pattern holds throughout the Bible, then all of a sudden when you get here, if what you're saying is wrong, there would be there would be judgment but no grace. Sure. So the pattern would continue with the judgment and the grace. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. There's the pattern there. In fact, Jesus gives us the pattern, remember, in the Olivet Discourse. Um, he gives it to us in Matthew 24. A better passage, actually, is in Luke 17. Remember, he gives two analogies of this day that's coming, the day of the Lord. And the first analogy is that of Noah. So before God's wrath came on Noah, what happened? Well, Noah's family are taken out, as it were. They're protected, right? So you have the salvation of the godly. And then you have judgment come. Well, then Jesus doubles down on that. And he says, well, look at Lot. Lot's family's taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And then the judgment came. Okay, so there's a, the whole point that Jesus is making there is there's a precedent that's been set for the salvation of the godly. And then the wrath of God comes. Exactly right. So that's why I think all of us are just arguing, when does the wrath come? So in other words, if you're pre-wrath, you're mid-trib, post-trib, we're all arguing Rightfully so. When does this wrath come? Because we know we have to be saved prior to it. We should all agree to that. Yeah. Yeah, Julie. Okay, I had three questions. <laughs> yeah. One was um, when you go back to um, Thessalonians 1, verse 10, um, and about um, Jesus delivering us from the wrath to come. Yeah. Wouldn't some say that that could mean the wrath to come at the final judgment? Yeah, exactly. You're right. Uh, There, we were not given the complete context. But what's nice is when you get to chapter 5, you realize that the day of the Lord is the topic at hand. And so because the day of the Lord is the topic specifically in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, we know that it's related probably to that. Okay, Okay? For sure we know that hell is part of the day of the Lord, but there's more to it than just that. And that's what I think we see in 1 Thessalonians 5. So that's why we want to start there, but we don't want to end in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Yep. Okay. 
Um, the second one was, you know, and it's saying there is peace and security. And you're yeah. talking about how that couldn't be in the um, uh, turbulation because there would be no peace and security. But is there ever really, like right now, there's not peace and security. So then can we assume that the rapture is not going to come because, you know, there's not, no one's saying that. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, it's qualitatively, let, let's say it this way. Jesus expects that when he returns, remember in Matthew 24, that just as in the days of Noah, they were giving in marriage and um, they were eating and drinking. Remember, they were unaware. Life was going on as it always has. Now, are people giving away in marriage now? Oh, absolutely. Um, the idea is when you look, start looking at the 70th week, when you lose a quarter of the earth's population, we've never lost that before. The worst that we've ever lost is probably 13% due to the bubonic plague. Uh, in World War II, the worst that we lost, World War II was the worst warfare that ever came upon the planet. It was 8% of the world's population, which is a lot of people. But this is going to be three times worse, and that's just in the beginning of the 70th week. Okay? So my point, and Jesus himself says, these are unparalleled times. If they had not been cut short, no flesh would survive. So what I'm saying is, yes, as bad as it is now, the majority of the people on the planet still aren't as concerned as they will be for warfare. It's going to be just widespread. Yeah. Okay, Does that make you. sense? Yeah. Yeah. Helps. Uh, yep. The last question I had was the 70th week. Um, why is that delayed rather than the other weeks are all just continuous? How, how, do, we yeah. know, how do we know that? It, um, we talk about this in our Daniel 9 exposition. The text itself, um, and we'll, maybe we'll do, have to do this sometime again, but in Daniel 9, you'll see a, in the text itself the seven years is pushed off. It's in a different segment. And I, I'd have to get out the text and we'd have to go through it again. But the text itself argues for a delay in the 70th week, the seven years. And I could show you that in the text itself. Um, we also know that, for example, when Jesus is referring to, he says, regarding that day or the hour, remember all of the information in the Olivet Discourse are references to the 70th week of Daniel. For instance, when he says, um, these things... We just look, okay, these things, but these things is replete of information regarding the 70th week, all the way back from Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel chapter 9. So we saw tons of information. What's Exactly. So Jesus assumed that the 70th week was still in the future. Remember he talks about the time when the um, Antichrist will set himself up, okay, and he'll set himself up as God in the temple, and he says, let the reader understand. You see that in Matthew 24, 15. Well, he wants you to understand what Daniel has written there. So Jesus is deliberately linking us back to Daniel 9. So it's not that you and I are saying, well, we're reading into it. No, Jesus himself expects these things in the future, the worst time period ever. Well, we haven't had that yet. When have we lost a third of the earth's population? Well, that hasn't happened yet. So that must be in the future. Because Jesus says, unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive. So we know it's in the future. And he links it to the 70th week from Daniel 9. So that's why we know that the 70th week is still in the future. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, good questions, very good. Very John good. MacArthur, in his book, The Time is Near, he yeah. does make the point, and he makes it pretty emphatically, that, and you brushed over it really quick, you said the second seal is, is that peace will be taken from the earth. Yeah. He says that the rider on the horse is the Antichrist, and he has a bow with no arrows. Sure. And that is the, he makes a point that that, could be the peace treaty. I'm not sure if he's emphatic on it, yeah. but he does make that point that the first seal could very much be the world leader making the peace treaty. Sure. And the second seal, peace is taken from the earth. 
I, I think there's a lot to that. I think the idea of conquering, he goes out to conquer, and he does conquer. But, yeah, you're right. It's not through violence. It's a threat of violence, but it's not through violence itself. Yeah, it's peaceful in the beginning. But right away, it's really the wrath of God. Remember, Jesus says, you won't receive me, but you'll receive another who comes in my name. And they do that in spades. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he's right. Yep. So I'm sorry. Uh, Bill. Oh, you're just holding. You're the, okay, I got you. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. So now we got off this text then. We're going to go to, we're going to go to the next one. Let's talk about another very important text. I know I've talked about this before, but it, it, it can't be worn out. Bob always says you can't wear out a Bible verse. Revelation 3.10 has been very abused and misunderstood. Let's talk about it. Again, this is a promise. First of all, let's remember it's a promise for all of us, not just the church at Philadelphia. Why? Because of the universal, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. This is a promise that's not just for Philadelphia, it's for all believers. And that's, for, by and large, if you look at the context of the passages in the uh, Revelation 2 and 3, that's what you have for all seven churches. Okay, So listen to what the promise is. He says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance... I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, what's happened is the big debate on this passage occurs over these two words, keep from. Keep is terao, means to keep or to guard. From is the preposition ek. Now, here's what happened. There's a man named Robert Gundry. He's a post-tribulationalist, and he wrote a very influential book in 1973 called The Church and the Tribulation. And his views held sway for a long time. What he maintained was that the term keep and the term from really have different definitions. And instead of one action, he saw them as referring to two. Now, this gets convoluted, but what he said is that keep means to keep through. And the from, he said, meant to go through something and then to be taken out from the midst of. So his view of being kept from would be to kept through the hour of trial and then being take out and taken out from the midst of once you're in it. Now, there was a great scholar, and by the way, Christy linked one of the authors that I want you to read if you have a chance. His name is Thomas Edgar. I think he's a Brit. He responded to Gundry's assertions and just demolished them and showed how absurd it was. Okay, Listen to what he says. He says, quote, even if Gundry did not separate the two, which he does, his solution is still impossible. How can the first word, to keep in, be combined in one action with a preposition, meaning out from within, to emerge? It's an absurdity. What we have here, brothers and sisters, is not the idea of keeping in to be taken out from the midst of, but simply one action to be kept from. That's what it means. And so Robert Gundry was reading in his view of his post-tribulationalism to this verb and this preposition. And I'm going to prove that to you with the remainder of our time together. Let's think, of this, let's think conceptually for a moment. Think of this sphere as representing the hour of trial. Okay, now why am I having that as an hour of trial or testing? Because that's what we're being promised to being kept from. Okay, now this hour of testing, notice it comes upon the whole world. Oikos mune the idea of the inhabited world. Okay, so it's not just a localized event that happened to the church in Philadelphia. This is the big kahuna. This is the one that comes upon the whole world, right? So we're being promised exemption from this hour of trial. Now, what I would maintain is, think about you and I are living somewhere over here, 
And we don't know when this hour of trial is going to happen, but when it does, what we're being promised is to be kept from it. That's the natural understanding of tereo ek. Now let me prove that to you. What's very interesting is there's only one other Bible passage in the entire Bible that has tereo and ek, but there are some close parallels with a term dia tereo. That just has a prefix on it. And I want you to see this. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Proverbs 21:23. I'm going to show you a track record where... Now, oh, by, the, by the way, before you turn to this, let me show you why I want you to do this. What I'm going to prove to you is the combination of the verb and the preposition means to be preserved on the outside. Robert Gundry, the post-tribulationalist, is saying, no, you're going to be kept through the time period and then be taken out of it. Okay, what I'm showing you is that the evidence from Scripture shows, no, it's always preservation on the outside of that time period or sphere. Okay, is everybody with me? So notice here in Proverbs 21:23, listen to this wisdom that Solomon writes about. He says, he who guards his mouth with his tongue guards his soul from troubles. Now notice the last phrase there, guards his soul. Guards is diatereo. Very similar to our tereo here. Now notice what it says, he guards his soul from troubles. So does Solomon have in mind then that you are in trouble, but if you guard your mouth, you'll be taken out from the trouble? No, he says what? You guard your soul from trouble. The idea is that you, if this is the time period of trouble that you would enter in because of your mouth. He's saying you keep yourself from trouble if you keep your mouth. In other words, you don't enter into trouble to begin with. Does everybody see that? It's not that you get yourself into trouble and then if you guard your mouth, you take yourself out of the trouble. He's saying you'll never enter into the trouble. You keep yourself from the trouble altogether if you guard your mouth. That's what he's saying. So what we have in Proverbs 21, 23 is preservation on the outside. That's very important. That's the first reference in Scripture to diatereo, which is very similar to tereo, and then the preposition ek. Okay, so we have preservation on the outside. So that refutes Gundry's idea that you're going to be in the sphere and then taken out of it. Does everybody follow the logic there? Okay, now let's look at another one. Turn your Bibles to Acts 15, 28 through 29. Here you have the Jerusalem Council. James is speaking here, and here you're going to see dia tereo used again with ek. Acts 15, 28 through 29. James says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Now notice where it says, if you keep yourselves free from such things. The term keep there is diatereo. The term from is ek. So very similar to the keep from. Now, does James want us to enter into those things and then take ourselves out of the sin? Or does he want us to keep ourselves from those sins altogether on the outside? So if this sphere represents those sins of having sacrificial idol meat and blood and all those things and immorality... If this sphere represents that, does he want us to enter into it and then take ourselves out of it? Or does he want us to keep ourselves from those things on the outside? I think it's the latter. Okay? It's obvious. 
Right now, let me give you the most important text because it's the only other passage in the entire Bible, and it's written by John, very important because he writes Revelation. The only other passage in the entire Bible that has tereo ek is John 17, 15. And this is the great high priestly prayer that Jesus gives. I think it's answered, obviously, by God. Notice here, John 17, 15. And again, this is very, very important for our understanding of Revelation 3.10. How does the verb and the preposition function together? John 17.15, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Now, does everyone see where it says keep? That's tereo. It's the same verb as you have here. And does everyone see from there in verse 15? That's the same term ek there. The only other port in the Bible where you have both words being used. All right? Now, what's being promised here is he is promising in this prayer that God will keep us, what, from the evil one. So if this represents the evil one, we're not going to enter into his sphere. We'll never be in his camp. Does that make sense? That's what he's asking. Now, how do we know that, that we are never touched by the evil one? Well, turn your Bibles to 1 John 5, 18 through 19. We know that no one who was born of God sins. This is 1 John 5, 18 through 19. We know that no one who was born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him. So we're kept by God. And the evil one does not touch him. Meaning, you're never, if you belong to Christ, if this represents the sphere, think of this as Satan's camp, the circle. All those who are unbelievers belong in this circle. What John has just said to us in 1 John 5.18 is that if you belong to Jesus, the evil one does not touch you. You're on the outside of his sphere. That's exactly what Jesus had asked for in his prayer. Keep them from the evil one. This is the evil one. See, he's not just asking for preservation from sin. If he was, Peter fails immediately. Remember the very next chapter? He ends up forsaking Christ. In fact, he denies him three times. So it's not that Jesus is asking that you and I would just be kept from sin, but ultimately kept from the sphere of the evil one. And 1 John 5.18 says that we are. The evil one does not touch us. Now notice in verse 19, he goes on to say, we know that that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the whole unregenerate world would lie in the sphere of the evil one, but not us. We're on the outside. The evil one does not touch us, just as Jesus had prayed for. Okay? So the point is the only other passage in the Bible where you have this verb and preposition combination, you have preservation on the outside. That means you and I cannot enter into this hour of trial the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world, and it's one that tests those who dwell on the earth. Now, that's a very important phrase because now we know where the hour of trial is coming or why it's coming. It's not coming to test us. It's coming for those who dwell upon the earth. Now, let's go through four passages and then we'll conclude for today. I want you to see that this phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, it's a phrase that has to do with unbelievers only. Turn to your book, your Bible, to Revelation 6.10. Revelation 6.10, you'll see the first of this phrase. Here's the fifth seal, 
And you have believers crying out because they've been martyred. They've been murdered for their faith. It says, They cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is that referring to believers or unbelievers? Well, it's obviously unbelievers. They're the ones who are martyring and killing Christians, right? Okay? Now, skip ahead to Revelation 8.13. I'm showing you every instance of this phrase, those who dwell upon the earth. Revelation 8.13. Then I looked. Now, this is just prior to the demonic realm being led out of the abyss in Revelation 9. It says, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, the demonic realm doesn't affect those who are believers, but only those who are unbelievers. That's why he says, woe to those who dwell upon the earth. So another proof that those who dwell upon the earth are only unbelievers. Okay, Revelation 11.10. Skip ahead three chapters. Revelation 11.10. Remember, this is where you have the two witnesses that are murdered. And who are they murdered by? Those who dwell upon the earth. The two witnesses, it says, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. That is the death of the two witnesses. And celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Do you see those phrases? One more time, Revelation 13, 14. Here you have the false prophet. And who does he deceive? Does he deceive everyone? No, it says in Revelation 13, 14, it says, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. I'll just, and it says, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So the point is, every time you see that phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, it's unbelievers. So the hour of testing is coming upon unbelievers, but you've been promised exemption on the outside. So now we've just looked at three texts, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Revelation 3.10, but there's others. Romans 5.9 also promises that we've been saved from the wrath to come. Okay, so you and I have to know that we've been saved from the wrath. And what we'll do next time is we'll wrestle with when does this time period begin? When does the time of wrath begin? That's all we have to wrestle with because why? We've been exempt from it. So now all you have to do is argue about, well, when does this wrath come? Now you boil down what the rapture debate is about. When does the wrath of God come? And that's what we're going to be focusing on when we get into Revelation chapter 6. Okay? Well, with that, we'll bow our heads in prayer and we'll continue the next time. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so, many, so much that we can look into these many great things that you have for us. I pray, Lord, that over the next weeks you would give us clarity, not so that we can be haughty or that we can be proud, but, Lord, that we may be settled with conviction that you have not muddled the ending, that you do have a plan, that we can understand it and we can believe it. We can believe these great promises that you have not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through your Son. We thank you for that, Lord, and we long for the coming of this kingdom. We pray, Lord, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.